Hello and welcome to the New Lines podcast. I'm Lydia Wilson, and this is a podcast where we delve into some of the biggest ideas, events, and personalities in the Middle East and beyond. Today's podcast is part of the magazine's new series focusing on histories and philosophies. Our guest today is Ahmed El Shamsi, Professor of Islamic Thought at the University of Chicago. Ahmed's interest is in the intellectual history of Islam, examining the historical and political contexts that give rise to different traditions and sometimes which lead to their decline. Ahmed's latest book, Rediscovering the Islamic Classics, How Editors and Print Culture Transformed an Intellectual Tradition, upended previous understandings of the intellectual changes during the 19th and 20th centuries in the Arabic-speaking world, a time of increasing European presence in the region and of huge social and technological change. It's a groundbreaking work, tracing the origins and evolution of Arabic language printing and the impact on scholarship in the Arab world. He is currently writing a book entitled Genealogies of Sunnism, tracing the formulation of the Sunni school of thought. Mohammed, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Now, your work really brings home the accidental nature of history. And I mean that both in terms of what happened in the past being shaped by specific events and actions with unimaginable and certainly unintended consequences, but also in how that past is excavated, the act, if you like, of being a historian. In fact, you open the book with one such accident. You stumble across a manuscript in Egypt's National Library. You were in the archive researching one thing, but you came across something else, which resulted in an entirely separate field of inquiry and the book. Can you tell us that story? Yes. So I was uh, researching for my dissertation, and my dissertation was on the ninth century, on the emergence of Islamic law uh, in that period. And um, I came across an, a manuscript that... Uh, uh, was exciting. It was something that that previous scholarship didn't know still existed, was still around. And so um, um, it, it was a manuscript from the ninth century. But the question is when this manuscript was produced. And I had a, I had some problems dating, uh, finding out uh, kind of, uh, the, the, the Islamic dating calendar, the Hijri dating calendar, one has to kind of um, uh, calculated to find out when when it was in the in the common era uh, calendar, and it turned out after some confusion that that this manuscript had been copied in the early twentieth century, um, and that really was something that that uh, totally surprised me because I was you know I, I had to stop for a moment and think well the early people were still copying manuscripts in the nineteen in the early twentieth century you know what didn't they didn't they use print already in that period, and so I even though I was trying to, um, I was trying to uh, uh, write a dissertation on the ninth century, I, I suddenly started to think about the modern period, and and about the questions of uh, of kind of book culture in the in the modern period. Book culture and book production. I mean, that's over a thousand years of copying the same text, right? <laughs> yes, and I mean, of course, uh, the question of how often a book has to be copied in, in a thousand years is a is a uh, is a question, um, you know, th there might be three, four, five, six, seven, eight generations in, you know, to, to, to cover such a period. Uh, but, um, you know, uh, yeah. there, there's, there's different ways in which um, 
in which books can be written on, on different materials. And so for paper, it can't, I mean, it's very unlikely to survive that that long time of period, that, that, that long period. Um, so it has to have a certain, like a certain amount of, a certain number of, of generations, maybe at, at least it has to be two, I guess, to to really survive for that long, long term period. Well, that's, I'm very interested actually in how um, that kind of technology of, of, of book culture, you know, you mentioned paper, which doesn't last as long as other sub, uh, other sub, substrates of writing, maybe. I'm thinking of parchment in medieval Europe, but it's far, far cheaper. And so it shapes the book culture in a, in a different way. It's, it's these sorts of te- technical aspects to a book really do shape a canon, don't they? Um, and of course, the big example that you explore in your last book is printing. Um, which shapes a canon in a totally different way because if you have scribes copying things like the one you found, that's that's slow and it's 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 a very different way of shaping which books are selected and how they're circulated to what happens in a print-based culture. Can you describe what happened to book culture over that specific period when printing became a larger part of the Arabic language book production? Well, so to to. Uh... Just to remind what what I, what I just said, that, that my my interest in print comes from a kind of a medievalist and a classicist background. Um, much of what has been written about print was about the modern period, and and by by scholars interested in the modern period. And so much of it was written by people who are interested in things like um, modern newspapers or translation movements from European thought into Arabic, and and how that was aided and 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 amplified by by the technology of print and so the thing that i was interested in is what does this technology do to the already existing um body of 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 arabic literature which is which is a vast body of literature right but in terms of time period um there was more than a thousand years since um kind of the the adoption of paper which really led to a, a boom in book production in, in the in the Islamic world, um, so both a long period and and a wide area in which books and you know I'm, I, I focus on, on books written in Arabic were produced. And so not just in Arabic speaking countries, but but really you know between West Africa, uh, uh, Muslim Spain, all the way to India, Indonesia, Malaysia, East Africa da- down to East Africa, uh, up into uh, parts of Central Asia and uh, and, and parts that are now Russia. So there, there's an enormous amount of books that were that were created in in handwritten form, and that you know what I'm interested in in this book is how this was then tr- translated and transformed in print and by print. And um, I mean, w- one of the first questions that people ask uh, when talking about print is why is it that print only emerged uh, in the Muslim world? Really, I mean, as a as a, as a large scale phenomenon in the 19th century. Uh, there were there were earlier uh, ventures and attempts um, uh, in the in the 18th century in Istanbul, but it, it really started uh, as as a mass phenomenon in Egypt in the in the 1820s. Well, really, uh, the first ones started before then, weren't they? They were within a, a generation of, of Gutenberg. What the, the the first attempts at Arabic language, yes. wasn't it? So we're going back hundreds of years. Yes, uh, but I mean the the. The, I mean, one of the one of the points of that, that 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 the literature on this topic has has always struggled with is is this issue 
why these early attempts, and we, we can see, you know, very, very shortly, uh, I mean, still in the 15th century, we, we have the first uh, prints, uh, not really in Arabic and not really by Muslims, uh, but, you know, prints that, that come up, but, but these ventures never kind of take off. So yeah. that this is a technology that, that exists and that is known but that that hasn't found a place in society, right? And and, and I think that that that's another important point that um, one doesn't kind of uh, subscribe to technological determinism in the sense of you know as soon as there is a certain technology, it has to be adopted, um, mm -hmm. and that, that there's a certain kind of progressivist bias in in this idea that that whatever is possible will be done. Yes. Um, but we, I mean, we know that ourselves that that that's not actually the the truth. Right? We, we could theoretically, uh, genetically modify our children. Uh, but I mean, it's not only it's forbidden, but it's that there's also a very strong stigma to the idea uh, of, of, of doing this, of kind of cloning children or something like this. Uh, so there, there was a sp specific kind of, um, you know, th th there was a culture in which books were produced and they were produced by scribes and they were produced basically on demand, right? Now that, that, that's the, that's the, Beautiful thing about about the scribal culture that if you want a book, you can you can hire somebody to copy it for you. Somebody who's who's very good at this, uh, not somebody like today. If you try this today, it's, it's going to be very difficult to, to copy a whole book. Uh, but people who who are uh, uh, experienced with that and they they'll write you one copy. And of course, there's a certain logic about this that uh, that you you know you, you don't have mass production of books. If you want to have two thousand copies, that that's a, that's very difficult. But the, the initial cost uh, of, of setting this up is minimum. You know, a scribe just needs to have some ink, a pen, and some paper. While if you want to if you want to print something, you need to have big machines. You need to have people who constantly work on this. You need to have, you know, you need to print a certain number of copies uh, to make this worthwhile, right? And then sell them. So you need to have a re reading public that is big enough to actually be interested in this and um, and, and consume right. this. Right. And you need a you need a reading public that's united in language because, you know, the Ottoman Empire at this point had all sorts of different types of intellectual languages, if I can put it like that. You know, you've got the bureaucratic language, you've got literary language of Ottoman, Turkish and, and, and Persian. And you've got a lot of minorities publishing their their religious texts in, in very specific languages, Hebrew, Greek, whichever, Armenian, you know. So you haven't really got a coherent market, do you, in, in Arabic? I mean, this, this is an important part of the story that I think uh, people are, might not be aware of. That that really the the um, let's say the the three hundred years before the nineteenth century were really uh, centuries in which Arabic uh, was on the decline in the sense of as a uh, as a lingua franca, and that that uh, languages like Persian particularly really became the lingua franca of much of uh, of much of the Muslim world, in, at least in Asia, and even into places like Egypt. Uh, and so th there is this um, moment at which uh, even in Egypt, the early printing uh, uh, really contains a lot of Persian and, and, uh, and Turkish works. And it, it only by the, by the late 19th century that you, that you have this switch that, that primarily Arabic books are uh, are produced and, and consumed. So there's also it's, it's also the story of, of print is also the story of the creation of a new of a new reading public and a new market and a new language. And so part and parcel of this is 
uh, mass education, you know, uh, the kind of explosion of literacy uh, that 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 creates a market that really thirsts for literature to read. And and of, of course, I'm not denying that they would they were uh, translating books from European languages uh, and, and and publishing them, and that they had newspapers and journals that discussed current affairs, etc. But at the same time, what is what is uh, I think what my book does kind of for the first time is that that it talks about the way in which uh, print was used and kind of selectively used to uh, resurrect certain parts of the Islamic intellectual tradition from this from this very large uh, uh, library that that existed previously in in, ma in manuscript form, and then the kind of what is actually the work that has to go into it and the challenges that go into it, uh, because it's it's, it's very difficult. It's, it's very difficult to do this. Yeah, well, before we get onto the detail of that kind of intellectual kind of flowering that this brought, I just wanted to just to finish off on print is it, it, you, you unpick a, another myth about printing, potentially precisely what you just said, because you're coming at it from kind of the opposite perspective. You're not coming at it from this this modernity project, but you're coming from the from the deep past and seeing this as a continuation um, of of intellectual traditions and, and strands. Um, and so what, one of the arguments that people have made is that it was print that revolutionized the world. And, and it's a claim people tend to make about a lot of different technologies, like uh, people calling the Arab Spring a Facebook revolution, you know, that it was down to the technology rather than the people or the ideas. And in both cases, it's a massive overstretch. I mean, you put it really well, uh, you put in your book, the technology of print was not a cause of the transformation as it was a site and a means of it. Can you unpack that quote a little bit? Yeah, so there is there is a there are a number of things going on on very different levels of society and very different level of, of uh, uh you know that there there is um in, in in the in the case of Egypt which I'm which I focus mostly on in this book is you have the formation of a modern state of a, a state with a bureaucracy, a centralized state that wants to educate its bureaucrats, that wants to educate its population. Um, and again, you know, because it's because it's in Egypt, it's obviously, you know, the, the, the language of bureaucracy has shifted, hasn't it? Um, yes. We only had the Ottoman Turkish within the Ottoman Empire for the bureaucracy. So then there's a whole new type of language and text being produced, isn't there? Yes. Um, I mean, even until the 20th century, they, you know, part of the uh, of the higher echelons of Egyptian bureaucracy were speaking Turkish. Um, um, so you have the formation of a modern state. You have a, therefore, also a formation of of uh, of new classes of new elites. So these were um, elites that 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 knew how to read and write, but who were not necessarily tied to kind of the religious seminary culture that that previously produced most of the the uh, the literate elites right the al azhar uh, places the, the madrasa places so you had um, what one would i guess call uh, secular education rise of that um uh, you have new technologies of of knowledge uh, storage so so modern libraries are uh, are founded um that that are that are quite different uh, in, in in you know compared to i mean there were there were libraries in, in the pre-modern period, but you had you had modern libraries that, that were founded. So there's there's ways in which um, also 
the, the way society sees itself as a as a uh, um, particularly in the light of of colonialism um, of um, you know Arab intellectuals going to Europe, uh, visiting Europe, seeing Europe, uh, feeling both kind of interested, inspired by Europe, but also threatened, of course, uh, by by, uh, by European expansion, and then the the, the need to communicate this. Uh, through kind of print media, through newspapers and journals, but then also to kind of draw on this vast ocean of uh, of intellectual tradition for the renewals of society. So this is this is not just kind of antiquarian interests in the classics of of Islamic thought, but really a kind of constructive way in which um, the kind of future Arabic future, Arabic Muslim future, is shaped by. Uh, drawing drawing selectively on this uh, on this classical tradition, the way I mean in, in, in a certain way you know parallel to to things that happened in the Renaissance, right? Mm, yes, yes, a revival in the interest of of the, the richness of the past. Um, well, as you've mentioned, the European powers that are so present, obviously, at this point in the region. Um, I, I mean, it, it's not my period, as historians love to say, but I actually know a little bit about it very tangentially because of the medieval philosophers that I read for my PhD. Now, the the texts I I was I needed had, had mostly been edited and published by 19th and 20th century Europeans. And the manuscripts those editions are based on are all too often held in European libraries and they were acquired during this same time. But I had no idea until I read your book of the extent of this drain of manuscripts away from the Middle East to Europe. And it's actually quite horrifying. Uh, what was happening? What was and what was the effect of this kind of Orientalist mania? So, yeah, I mean, there, there has always been... Um movement of books uh, particularly you know from the middle east into europe uh, throughout the middle ages uh, you know we have very old collections we have collections in the vatican for example or um, kind of early modern collections like the the you know the escorial library in spain etc uh, so there, there have always been books that that, that went to europe but um, there is a kind of quality uh, kind of quantitative qualitative change in the 19th century where with colonialism you have both the the uh, the military uh, technology uh, for example the when the the the, the, the British uh, um, put down the what the British call the the mutiny in India right the, the rebellion against British rule uh, they sacked the 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 uh, Mughal palace library and and basically brought this library uh, to to England, uh, but kind of in 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 less less brutal fashion, uh, you have a kind of a financial imbalance. You have this, you know, even in in Europe, you have foundation of these of these grand libraries, and they have they have enormous amount of, fu of funding, and they are really hungry for these books. And uh, through kind of very often, there are these consuls, these European diplomats uh, who live in the Middle East, and they make um, they become rich on the side by buying manuscripts in the Middle East and then selling it back to Europe. And so you have tens and probably hundreds of thousands of manuscripts that are uh, taken from the Middle East and brought to Europe. And, and, and these, these Orientalists very often are interested in the most ancient manuscripts. So very often the oldest works uh, are lost and really uh, 
no copy left in the Middle East of, of, of very old, particularly old works, works that Europeans were particularly interested in, like philosophical works. So in, in a manuscript society, uh, you just don't have the, the, the number of copies of each work that you have in a, in a print culture. So therefore, um, by the, by the mid-late 19th century, uh, people in the Middle East find themselves in a situation where um, they are aware of, of their books in European libraries because these, these libraries have, have catalogued their, their manuscripts and they can read their, these catalogs. But, but these books are actually not accessible to them in the Middle East anymore, which creates a very strange also cultural sense of alienation or, and, and, and of urgency that, this, uh, that you know, we have been deprived of uh, particularly our earliest works and, and, and particular types of works, uh, philosophical works, of course, Europeans were particularly interested in. So it's, it's a strange situation in which um, uh, Europe has, a, has been able to capture um, uh, not just, I mean, of course, we know in museums, Europeans have brought, you know, columns and, and temples, et cetera, et cetera, to your entire temples. Uh, but, uh, but in terms of books, this, this is a different thing. This is an intellectual heritage that is, that is missing or that, is, that has been deprived. And so print is used also as a technology of recovering these things. Uh, so that there, there, there is, your, as you mentioned, Europeans are editing Arabic works. Uh, and and printing them and people in the Middle East are doing this. Of course, in, in the Middle East you have a much larger volume, but you also have kind of a kind of an arms race in terms of methodology, kind of uh, how to do this in the most scientific ma manner uh, uh, and so on. But uh, but there is th that kind of that imbalance that you know Edward Said used to call kind of Orientalism, uh, um, in which you have this 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 drive to know the Middle East. Uh, Together with a, with a, with remarkable financial capabilities that really deprive the Middle East of, of of a significant part of its of its heritage. Yeah, it's a real power imbalance. You know, the kind of through ownership of really quite you know direct ownership of an intellectual tradition. I mean, is that one of the things that drives part of the nationalist agenda that you've already mentioned that that building of the libraries? Yes, definitely. So the. the Part of the problem is that you have these these uh, dispersed uh, pre-modern libraries that have um, uh, that are based on on uh, um, religious endowments. Uh, so the, the, these religious endowments that finance these libraries, that finance the libra librarians, etc. And um, in the 17th, 18th, and 19th century, these these endowments lose a lot of their value, and so these librarians get Either paid a pittance, you know, haven't had a raise for 300 years, something like this, and th that leads to, you know, of course, uh, you don't get the best people anymore, and people start selling books from these from these traditional libraries. And what these modern libraries do that are that are uh, founded in the in the uh, Arab world, uh, Dar al Kutub uh, in Egypt in 1870, the Wahiriya in Syria in, in 1879. Um, is basically the state taking over, uh, creating a, a, a central library where all these uh, holdings of these 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 scattered uh, endowed libraries are forcibly brought together and um, preserved from further dispersal. And this is actually something that that they said explicitly in these foundational documents that this is there in order to preserve these uh, these manuscripts from being further dispersed and being also the kind of 
beginning of, of, you know, these libraries continue to collect from private people in, in uh, the Arab world over over the next uh, decades. Uh, so so individuals who who didn't know. I mean, if you imagine, you have you you move from a, a, a manuscript culture to a print culture. Individuals kind of with time don't really know what to do anymore with these manuscripts. So so what do they do with it? They now have a place where they can uh, where they can deposit these manuscripts. So these these national libraries also grow in terms of their their, their manuscripts from tens of thousands to really hundreds of thousands of works. And they are very major libraries today. Um, but that idea of a market that, um, as you say, the, the custodians of those private endowed libraries started selling them off just because they were so desperate, I suppose. Um, that, that, that creation of a market might also, I assume, lead to a certain pressure on or, or temptation to forgery, which brings me to the essay that you wrote for New Lines, which was called The Hoax in the Isis Flag. And I wonder if there's a connection there to that European book drain, that, that there's a pressure to produce forgeries. Um, and because, I mean, I'll just quickly, for people who haven't, haven't read it yet, because I do recommend it, um, the Ottoman Sultan of the time, Abdul Majid, he had a particular obsession, not very rare then or now or in the past, um, with of manuscripts that were somehow linked to the Prophet Muhammad. Now, this was another very difficult need to fulfill, given the paucity of manuscripts from the seventh century. So again, it's a temptation for the greedy to fulfill that need through forgery. Can you tell us a little bit about what happened? Yeah, so again, this the 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 figures here are uh, very the European figures are very often connected to diplo the, the diplomatic service. So these were diplomats who had some sort of Orientalist training in terms of uh, Oriental languages, and um, uh, you have uh, a group of of uh, French diplomat scholars that are claiming that they have uh, that one of them has discovered uh, in a unnamed, never named uh, uh, Coptic Christian monastery in Upper Egypt, a uh, the original of a letter by the Prophet Muhammad to um, to the, the the leader of Egypt in the written in the seventh century. And um, the French they uh, they 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 uh, pen a uh, a scholarly article on this in which they transcribe it and they uh, try to show that that this is authentic and argue for it for, for its authenticity, and uh, you know in in European circles this is you know considered for a while, um, and in that in that time period you know behind the scenes certain things are, can't be kind of reproduced, but uh, uh, the, 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 this letter is 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 ordered is is offered to the to the Ottoman Sultan and the Ottoman Sultan. Uh, ends up buying it and then uh, I mean ends up buying it for an enormous amount of money uh, and uh, and then you have more and more of these letters su suddenly creeping out of the woodwork so to speak uh, and with time it it you know on both sides you know both in in, in Europe and the Muslim world people re start to realize and this that really doesn't look right and 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 there are things that are really obviously wrong with these letters. Uh, and in, in, in fact, it becomes kind of more or less the, the accepted position, both in um, among Muslim scholars and, and in among Western scholars, that these are forged letters. Uh, but by that time, these things have become um, 
uh, relics in the in the Ottoman uh, Sultan's palace in the, the Topkapi Palace in in Istanbul, uh, where one can you know see them, visit them uh, even today, and it becomes a a kind of a symbol. You know, you have the so-called seal of the Prophet Muhammad, the kind of seal ring that he had that he uh, that he uh, uh, stamped his letters with, that becomes a kind of a symbol from the prophetic age and uh, becomes part of the Ottoman uh, court ritual, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And and um, uh, despite you know not having scholarly uh, recognition, it, it it in kind of uh, lay religiosity, it it retains this this aura, um, you know. And then until uh, the early two thousands, when it gets adopted by uh, by uh, ISIS in or, you know first of all Al Qaeda in Iraq and then ISIS uh, and makes it on its flag, uh, <laughs> and so there is a, a kind of a this kind of strange continuity in which. You know, you see that that there that there's this need for 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 this for this authentic material. Uh, there's this gold rush situation in the 19th century uh, with with artifacts, with manuscripts, uh, uh, and of course, a lot of this stuff in the 19th century is authentic. But on the margins, you have less uh, scrupulous people who also who also forge things, and it, it just happened in this specific circumstance that the forged elements uh, you know come come to the forefront because they are so. Uh, it's such an attractive proposition to have to have a, a real artifact from from Muhammad's lifetime. Of course, the interesting thing is in in the last uh, in the last twenty years we actually have discovered uh, uh, Quranic manuscripts that are from uh, for, probably from the lifetime of Muhammad, uh, but uh, but they look much less uh, much less spectacular. They couldn't go on a flag. <laughs> That's right. Uh, so yeah, there was an investment in believing this particular one. I mean. But these European Orientalists from this time, I mean, there's be, they had an enormous effect, not just in that kind of intellectual feeding frenzy that meant that, that there was a huge loss of manuscripts from the region and not just from these kind of forgeries that they used to make so much money. But it was also accompanied by the birth of many of the Orientalist myths. I mean, we've had a few of them already, but um, to keep within your, your work, um, it, I've experienced one in terms of the history of printing when we were telling the story of printing for a documentary. And I had to resist the narrative I, uh, of, an, of an ignorant Ottoman sultan who banned printing and then it didn't develop in the Middle East for another two or three centuries. Now, when I heard that explanation, I didn't know anything about the sultan nor the period, but I just knew it, it, it had the typical kind of shape and smell of an orientalist myth it was impossible it was true um can you explain if a little bit too late for my own needs of pushing back against documentary makers why this specific story is totally irrelevant to the history of printing yeah so th there are you know we do have accounts of of european travelers um in um i think in the 16th century that that talk about an ottoman ban of printing um, so it, it is it is theoretically possible that that such a ban was in in place for for a while in the 16th century, even though we, nobody has found an actual document uh, that would have that that would be the smoking gun. That, oh, it, it actually was banned. Uh, but the the reason why this is really um, not really not really useful in explaining the absence of print in that period is that. Um, just the fact that something wasn't necessarily legal doesn't really explain why it didn't happen. There are all kinds of things that weren't 
that weren't legal in the Ottoman Empire in that particular time period. So let, for example, I mean, all these new things that uh, that appeared in, in the Ottoman uh, world at that time, uh, tobacco and coffee, uh, two obviously world-changing uh, <laughs> uh, new technologies, right? Uh, tobacco from 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 the New World and and coffee really from from uh, you know from Yemen and East Africa, um, they were they were both banned, but uh, they nevertheless thrived uh, and 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 in the Ottoman world and then of course exported to other places. But uh, the, the the question really is, uh, I mean, kind of a 16th century Ottoman state had very limited possibilities of suppressing things that really uh, had a need in society uh, that that were adopted by society. So even if there had been a ban, um, if, uh, you know, it, it's difficult to imagine how this would have effectively suppressed the adoption of print. Um, if there had been a need, if there had been a uh, um, kind of a, a stratum of society that wanted to have printed books. And so the, the I mean, my colleague Catherine Schwartz is, is really the, the, the uh, uh, the person who has written most on this topic, but uh, in my mind, really, it is that the, the explanation is is much more, first of all, on the economic side, um, um, and kind of on a, on a, on a cultural side. You know, like you, the different ways. I mean, I don't know if if you remember when 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 the e-books started uh, coming out in the in the early two thousands, there were these predictions that by two thousand fifteen there would be no books printed anymore. Yeah. Uh, and in a certain sense that, you know, it's, it's the more rational thing, you know, why do we, you know, we cut down all those trees and et cetera, et cetera. Why not just have them as, as digits? And it just didn't quite turn out that way. There's a certain percentage of the book market that is eBooks now, but it seems to be relatively stable. People want to, uh, you know, for whatever reasons, uh, they, they are attached to, to these physical objects. And in the same way, uh, you know, the, the, the Muslim world was attached to these handwritten manuscripts for, for quite a, uh, a, a time period until uh, you have, um, you know, you have the Egyptian state starting to print things and people getting used to, like, you have to get used to consuming written material in a specific way. Yeah. And once these these school books are printed in Egypt and people you read the newspaper every day and, it's a, and so on and so on, you start to get to, you know, used to the, the mode of of print, you know, of consuming printed material, and that's then what you also accept for uh, for book length studies. And so there's a cultural and economic uh, explanation that I think is much more convincing than simply saying, well, there was, you know, the kind of idea of uh, there's an overweight man on a throne that just forbids it, and that's why it didn't happen. So basically, nobody needed the printed books as much as they needed coffee and tobacco, right? That's right. Um, so you've described all of this kind of massive social, political, technological change that was happening at this kind of time, that there was a certain response to the disappearance of the manuscripts that were ending up in European libraries. Uh, there was the nationalism, which was accompanied with the much expanded literacy rates, but also new um, uh, intellectual elites like the civil servants and and and, and uh, well just just more more centers of intellectual activity um but we didn't actually talk about what that resulted in in terms of the debates the ideas in society what was happening when things were moving out of the madrasas and azhar and all the rest of it and being circulated more widely through printed books uh, what what happened to intellectual culture? Yes, yeah, so 
the way I imagine this as a kind of as a big picture is that um, kind of tradition expanded, uh, the horizon of tradition expanded in the sense that um, a lot of books that had basically been had fallen out of the conversation were were rediscovered and reintroduced into what I call the cultural bloodstream through print. So um, uh, the, the the sense of a tradition uh, was disturbed by this. Uh, if you imagine, like any at any kind of given time, there, there's a limited number of of ideas that are that are present in society in discourse, right? Uh, and 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 your cu your current debate is kind of it gets reinvigorated by people reading books like oh you know I'm I'm, I'm rereading rereading Marx or I'm rereading Shakespeare or something like this. Um, and what what print did was it it really allowed people to uh, and, and and that's large part of my book right stories of people who are traveling far and wide and discovering like one manuscript that survives of a book and then editing it and then the next year suddenly everybody can read this book right so that there is the the the, the Arab Islamic tradition is not a tradition that that was kind of available to everybody um, it was very dispersed. Uh, uh, much of this, uh, you know, like multi-volume works, there, there was there was no place where all these volumes were present. But what you could do with print is you can bring these things together, you print them, and then they're suddenly almost universally available. And together with with new new forms of trade, then these books get spread all over the world, right? Like they get printed in Egypt one year, and the same year you can buy them in Bombay, and you can buy them in London, and you can buy them in in uh, uh, in Mombasa. Or, uh, or Nigeria or something like this, and uh, so th there is a uh, there's a widening of the of the debates, and 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 particularly in the modern period when when these societies really engage in 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 radical in radical debates about but how the future should be, uh, how the how modernization should proceed, uh, you not only have whatever translations of Voltaire or of Rousseau or of uh, John Stuart Mill. Uh, to to contend with, but you also have uh, kind of indigenous ideas that are that are now available through print, and so the the the, the debates on the future are are in are, um, um, you know have at their disposal um, uh, the the kind of a richness of its own tradition, uh, and so the, the kind of intellectual debates of the of the early nineteenth century, let's say. Uh, they were focused on 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 a specific kind of um, kind of spectrum of texts that that people were reading. But with print, you suddenly can can go back in time. You can read somebody who had been marginalized over the over the centuries, etc. That kind of uh, expansion uh, and 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 creative usage of of uh, of different parts of the intellectual tradition uh, was really part and parcel of of this of this movement that 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 is in Arabic called the Nahda. Right, the kind of uh, revival or renaissance of of of, um, of intellectual tradition in the in the Arab world in in uh, in uh, places like uh, you know in Beirut or Cairo or Damascus and uh, other hubs of, of of Arabic culture in which people really have you know it, it's it's a it's a an, an exciting time in which people are, are are thinking about the future the possibilities of the future and what this this research about about print and classics I think adds is 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 to show that. That the, it wasn't just about um, uh, about European ideas, or not even primarily about European ideas, but it, much of this was about people 
going into manuscript libraries and just reading stuff and then what they found interesting taking out of there and then printing it and and, and making it universally available well I, as you talk you're kind of countering another orientalist myth in this case um it's one that i find p- particularly pernicious i i still hear it it's it's the one um, seeing the the history of Arabic and Islamic philosophy as somehow slowly dying off, kind of I don't know, thirteenth, fourteenth century, you know, beginning the decline after that so called golden age, and then it's only revived by Europeans bringing modernity, and of course that's a complicated term in itself. Um, but how would you characterize the alternative picture? You actually present it in your book, not not that Europeans are kind of grafting on modernity, but there's been, you know, that that revival you've just described of a far bigger, vast um, backstory. So, I mean, first of all, I I push back against this idea that 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 you have basically two periods in in Islamic thought. One of them is kind of the pre-modern, and then there's the modern. And the pre-modern is like one thing, one unitary thing, and then there's the modern. Um, What I want to show is that there are, even in the pre-modern written culture, there's different different times, there's different uh, um, levels of of literacy, there's, there's, um, I mean, I I think uh, I'm I'm arguing in, uh, uh, hopefully convincingly in, in, in my book, that in the um, in the two centuries preceding print, you have a decline in uh, in public libraries, right? In the availability of public libraries, and that also leads to makes it easier for Europeans to buy up a lot of these books. So I'm I'm not saying everything was was uh, was rosy or uh, uh, you know necessarily positive in terms of the, the 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 book market that existed in the Arab world before print. But um, uh, what what you mentioned is, is that. Uh, you know that the, there is a new uh, attitude towards the tradition that we that we see uh, emerging in the age of print, which is that that you are able to draw on the tradition for your purposes uh, of of a specific historical moment. It is not that that the tradition is one single thing that the, that the tradition gives you one answer to every question, but that the tradition has a has a whole host of answers of possible answers that you can choose from. That seems most appropriate for your specific uh, for your specific transformation that you want to achieve. So the tradition is not is not a static and necessarily conservative uh, source, but it in fact is a is a source for uh, for for imagining yourself a different way. So you have different types of intellectuals that draw on different types of the tradition to um, um, yeah to argue for, for for their specific positions. Whether you you are looking for uh, you know, kind of political unity. Whether you're looking for uh, kind of cultural uh, revivification, uh, whether you're looking for uh, martial values in 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 resisting European incursion. So the 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 tradition becomes a um, uh, kind of a resource of possibility rather than rather than constraint. And and because that that that's something that we think about, you know, in terms of modernity and pre-modernity that in modernity we are in charge of our past right and we can kind of uh, uh you know we can forget about the things that, that we don't like and we can draw on the things that we like whether in while in in, in pre-modernity we were kind of victims to the past right the t- tradition just just ruled over us and and in a certain way uh print has this effect 
on on uh, on Arab-Islamic kind of intellectual debates, namely that that people kind of uh, by um, by printing these texts, they, they, they might be reviving things that had really fallen out of the tradition that nobody knew about anymore. And that that kind of adds something very different to a to a tradition than than just reteaching the text that you have taught that you know your teacher has 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 taught you and and he was uh, he or she were taught by their teachers etc cetera, etc. Cetera. So that kind of um, uh, new uh, new relationship to to one's own past I think that that is the big change that happens. Yeah. Well. I wondered, after covering such a huge amount of history as you have, um, starting in the ninth century for your PhD and getting all the way up to the 20th century, looking at how that tradition was drawn on, as you've just described, um, I wonder if you could tell us, to wrap up, what you're, anything about what you're working on now, which is the formation of Sunnism. You've gone right back, haven't you? Um, now, Sunnism, for many people, means the mainstream of Islam, right? What... What drew you to this topic? Well, I mean, I'm I'm always interested in, in how th- things relate. It you know how 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 there are questions that we somehow take for granted uh, in understanding the world, but then we actually don't quite know what we are talking about. And um, um, if you look at the term Sunnism, um, somehow anybody and everybody. You know, who, who who gives a basic introduction to to Islam will use the word Sunni or Sunnism, but then once you actually come to the definition, or what, once you come to what the history, like when did it start, some, even a, some, such a simple question, uh, you know, people will radically disagree about this. And so, what I want to show is that that Sunnism is a is a, a really um, a term that is that is uh, not um, that 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 has Many meanings. It has many meanings today. Uh, th- there are there are uh, debates, you know, right now as we speak, you know, 21st century debates about the nature of Sunnism, and you can follow the, both the roots and, and and the variety of debates all the way back into the 8th century when when the term for Sunnism or the Arabic term for Sunnism, al Sunnah Jama'ah, emerged. And so, what I want to, you know, the, the reason why I call this book, what I want to call this book, genealogies of Sunnism, is to show. You know that 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 these various de- definitions they are they are related to each other, but they 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 always come in new garb. So it's it's not a single Sunnism is not a is not a simple phenomenon. It's not a simple simple group of people that you can just say okay these are the Sunnis and and we can trace them through history, but it's really, you know what it means to be Sunni uh, uh, changes quite radically over 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 the period of time. But there's nevertheless a kind of a family resemblance between these things. So I want to bring this term from. Um, um, from a simple slogan to a really uh, kind of historically graspable kind of concept. Well, I look forward to the results very much indeed and hope we can publish something in new lines as well. Ahmed Al-Shamsi, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Lydia. You can buy Ahmed's book, Rediscovering the Islamic Classics, How Editors and Print Culture Transformed an Intellectual Tradition in All Good Bookshops and follow him on Twitter at at A underscore L underscore Shamsi. His essay, The Hoax in the ISIS Flag, is available to read at newlinesmag.com. This week's podcast was produced by Joshua Martin and hosted by me, Lydia Wilson. You can subscribe to the New Lines magazine podcast on your favourite podcast app. And of course, you can find more of the best stories from the Middle East and beyond on our website, newlinesmag.com. Thank you all for joining us. 